I'm going to get you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles uh, and just uh, get it ready there at Matthew uh, 18. Uh, we're going to be starting a series um, I call Offense, Take It or Leave It. And um, this, this message here particularly is, uh, is called The Cost of Offense. And we're going to start a series where we're going to go through um, some biblical passages. We're going to talk about some, some characters in the Bible and how they responded to confrontation, either good or either bad. And we're going to look at Jesus' life and his uh, ability to walk this earth. And really, you get a sense when you look at Jesus and you look at the Gospels, you look at the amount of people he interacted with, and he had a way of other people's stuff didn't seem to offend him and cause him problems. Yet that is something we often deal with. So in the interest of being prepared, I hope you understand that as, as I preach in this sermon, uh, some of this will be from stuff that I've learned as I've read and studied, and some will be from my own life. But also know that I'm not perfect in this. This is not me standing up here setting off all the perfect ways in which I know. This is me journeying along with you about this. And, uh, and so we're going to be looking at Matthew. But before I start, I want to just tell you a story. Uh, in 1997, I would have been in uh, grade 8. And then some of you just went, oh my. <laughs> Sorry. My graduating class for grade 8, we graduated in uh, June of, of 28, uh, sorry, not 20, <laughs> 1998. I was, uh, not to sound conceited, I, I was the best athlete in my school. I know that's just, that does sound conceited once you actually say it like that. <laughs> there, was, <laughs> there was only about, there was a little over 200 students in the school. And, uh, and so anyways, I knew I was the best athlete in the school at the time. And trust me, I made sure that everyone else knew it too. Um, I received one award in grade eight at my graduation, which was male athlete of the year. And I felt like I was overlooked for another one. <laughs> Maybe a few other ones too. But I never really felt like I fully fit in with my peers. And so my best hope that I knew how to fit in was through sports. I had watched enough movies by that point to know that if you're the captain of a team, and you've heard me talk a little bit about this. Well, we used to play basketball almost all the time at lunch at the side of the building. And we're talking like the public school nets, like the wood and just outside, right beside a brick wall so that when you do a layup, you like crash right into it and like break your shoulder. If you've ever played at an elementary school, you will know exactly what I'm talking about. Anyways, I would play basketball at recess. And in my mind, I was playing in game seven of the NBA finals every single recess. I went and gave it my all. So much so that other people, I think, now that I look back, they're like, why is this kid playing so hard? Like, this is just, this is just recess. Simmer down, buddy. Okay? Well, anyways, there was this one kid. There are many kids from my school that I would struggle to remember their name. I could probably walk right by them. But this one kid, he had only been in that school for a year before this. This one kid, and I can even picture him to this day. I can picture his, um, I can picture his, like, his red hair, I can picture this, his freckles, I can picture his nose that kind of is sharp and comes out from his face and kind of curves back down to his, his mouth, and I can almost picture his grin that almost seems like the Grinch or something, just, and I still know his name. I'm going to not use his real name just in case, you never know, but 
his, we'll go with Steve, but I still do remember his name. And there's a reason for it, because after one of these recesses of playing basketball, this kid, he, I, I probably showed him up or something, and he was, he's not happy with me, and, and he grabs the ball, and he's like, listen, I'm going to tell you you're a good player when you make the NBA someday. Until then, and he just left it at that. Now, it is ridiculous that I still remember this moment. I've remembered this moment. I remembered that moment when I lost my basketball championship in high school. That kid's words played in my head that day. I remembered those words when I tried out for the Roberts Wesleyan basketball team and got told I wasn't quite good enough to make the team. I could practice and be a red shirt but not dress for games. That kid's words that day were in my head. Why did one thing that one person said to me nine years later that he said on a playground at afternoon recess do that to me? Because I had taken offense to what he had said. And I had realized over that time, I'd, even though it was a small thing, I actually hadn't forgiven him of that moment. And this is where we're starting. We're starting this series talking about offense, and so we need to ground it in some scripture, and so we're going to start here in Matthew 18. Now, I don't have time to read the whole chapter, but I'm going to talk a little bit about the whole chapter, but why don't you turn to me to verse 21, and we are going to read the story of the unmerciful servant. Verse 21, then Peter came to Jesus and he asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Your version may say 70 times seven. It's a little thing depending on the, the ordering of the words there. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owned him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and he began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell on his knees and, said, and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. 
Heavenly Father, I pray even right now that the words of that chapter sit in our heart and even begin to show us the areas where we need to be more like you. Heavenly Father, I pray you give me strength and you give me the words to share this morning to give clarity and give, and give freedom to the captives bound by unforgiveness this morning. I pray in your name. Amen. Now just remember, whenever you step into a chapter like this, whenever you step into a parable, know that there's stuff that came before it that is important. There is the chapter... There's the context of the, the, the whole setting of what's going on. There's the context of the book. There's the context of the whole narrative of Scripture. So Matthew 18 in context. If you look before, you'll notice that there's the story of, it starts with um, the, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The disciples, hey, they came and asked Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, that you have to be like a little child. And then it goes on, and after it talks about children for a second, it then talks about, you know, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, you need to cut it off and throw it away. And then that moves into the parable of the lost sheep, where he leaves the 99, which we sang about this morning. I didn't know he was picking that song. And then it talks about, actually, about what happens when someone sins against you. Here's some practical advice of what to do. And then it moves right into this kind of closing parable. And I would almost argue that it kind of ties this whole chapter together. And so we're going to have to look at just a few things before we get into the particular session or section we're talking about. Jesus pulls over a little child at the very start of this chapter. And he pulls this child and he uses this child as an analogy. He says, unless you are like a child, this is the type of follower I'm looking for. So he starts an analogy with a child. It's key to remember that he says child and then he talks about little ones or as followers of Christ. He then moves from child to little children or to little ones. And one commentator made an argument that it's a movement from child, from just follower down to young follower, which would be a new follower in Christ. And so you have to ask yourself a question. Did Jesus just switch all the metaphors as he's taught? Is he just jumping all over the place? Or is this, this idea of children being a metaphor throughout the whole thing? Because it's interesting. At the end of the 99, when he talks about he goes away to find the one in Matthew, at the end it says this in verse 14 in that little section. In the same way your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. So the question is, is he talking about children here? Or is he talking about young believers? Because at the start he says a child, this is like someone who's a follower of Christ. Interestingly, this whole chapter, I believe, is about the church. The lost here, the one that's gone astray, I think in Luke it talks very, it seems a little bit more clear that it's about someone who's not been saved. I think this chapter here, this going and leaving the 99 to find the one, is a, is a new believer who has kind of gotten messed up a little bit in their sin. And it talks about the heart of a father being someone who goes after that kind of person. Our argument can be made that the analogy of children to followers of Christ holds through this whole section and that little children is a way of saying new followers. 
why are we talking about this if we're actually talking about offense and if we're actually talking about the parable of the unmerciful servant? Because what is happening in this passage is this is a chapter that is devoted to how you deal with one another, especially as the church. Because sin happens in the church. If we're honest, sin happens in the church. I might sin against you. You might sin against me. We might sin against God. And it's all well taking place while we gather together as a community. And sin has one purpose, and it is to destroy and pull apart and break and destroy the image of God that is in you and in us as a collective. And if we allow sin to exist in this community of believers, it will do its course and it will try to pull us apart. And that's why in this chapter you have verses 15 through 20, which give a bunch of rules on how to go to someone who's in, who's in sin. And I'm just going to read one verse here from that. And it says, um, But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. This chapter is about the church. There are three times outside of Paul's letter where the word church is used, and it's ecclesia, or assembly or gathering, and all three of those are found in Matthew, two of them here. The previous one is in chapter 16 when he says, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Most other times when he's talking about gatherings and stuff like that, it's talking about synagogue. Jesus is talking here specifically about a type of gathering he would foresee where believers would be together and they would need to interact with one another. On this rock I will build my gathering and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Sin between Christians or the sin left unchecked, unchallenged, is one of the very things that will try to prevail against the church. And one of the ways we don't let it win is to call it out and forgive it. Why I talked about this is because sometimes we can get all the way over here to where forgiveness is lovey-dovey and it's almost like, oh, I know, you hurt me. It's okay, don't worry about it. And, and then over here, it's, you hurt me, and I'm going to make sure you own that the rest of your life. And somewhere in the middle is an ability to stand with character, to be able to say, this person genuinely did hurt me, and I know how to properly deal with it, and I know also how to properly forgive. So this is where we find ourselves in this moment with this parable now of the unmerciful servant. Think context of church. Think context of gathering. Think context of how do we do a sin. And, and Jesus rolls right into this. And Peter, after teaching a little bit, Peter goes, okay, all right, all about this whole sin stuff. What if my brother keeps on sinning against me? What, what should I do then? Maybe, I, maybe I'll maybe only forgive him seven times? And Jesus says 70, or maybe it's 70 times 7. In any words, it's, it's meant to be hyperbole. It's meant to be a lot. In the Old Testament, it is, 
it, it, there was a bit of a, a few scriptures. We're not going to go to them because we don't have time. But there was a, a kind of a, um, a rabbinic tradition that was created, which was that you would be forgiven three times. After the third time, if you repeated it, there would no longer be any need to forgive them. And if you look at, if you look at the story of Israel, you see how many times they sin, and yet God does forgive. But he does exile them. And so in a Jewish perspective, there is a, there is a limit to how much you can anger this God before he's actually going to react. And so, so there was a teaching at the time which said that you could sin or you could basically be forgiven up to three times. And so that here I quote from the Yama 86b, 87a. If a man commits a transgression, the first, second, and third time he is forgiven, but the fourth time he is not and I wonder if Peter knew about that. And he's like, okay, Yama says three. I'm going to say seven. I'm going to be the A student. Because you always do more than necessary when you're the A student. But Jesus destroys his attempt at being holy. And he says, not seven. Seventy. Seventy times. Keep going. You're not there yet. One commentator looked at this section, he thought to himself, just the way it worked out, and he says, it almost seems more like it's actually not, sometimes I've, I've thought about that passage as being, okay, I sinned against Cedric, I really hurt Cedric, and then for the rest of Cedric's life, he has to keep forgiving me for that one thing I did to him. But one commentator said, it's probably more likely that it's a continuance of forgiveness even when I continue to err against Cedric over time. It's a continuing forgiveness. How many of you have ever regularly forgiven someone who's late? And that person is always late. Okay. I see a big hand back there from Monica. And Monica's got her hand way up there. Those of you who are perpetually late, you just kind of went like this. <laughs> don't know what you're talking about pastor don't start meddling now <laughs> you may then ask this question followed up to that okay do we just let people walk over us then do we just let people sin against us whole lives and we just yeah go ahead I'm yep I forgive you no and why because the previous section which we're not going into depth on is what happens when a brother sins against you or a sister sins against you you go and you tell them about it we in Canada have become so passive that we let someone sin against us and then we say okay you're forgiven we let someone sin against, you're forgiven you're forgiven you're forgiven I hate that person why do they keep sinning against me you've never gone and told them how you felt you've just been polite and you've polited yourself right into offense. Interestingly, if you look at this number, it says that this man had a debt of 10,000 denarii. How many of you guys know how much 10,000 denarii is? I'm going to tell you. One silver talent is about 75 pounds. Valued at 6,000 denarii, okay? One denarius is equivalent to a day's wage for a common laborer. Some of you who like math, you're like, yeah, yeah, I'm following you, following you. Other people are like, just get to the number, dude. Just get to the number. <laughs> Using Canadian's minimum wage, thank you to liberals, that's $15 an hour, times that by eight, 
and you get a daily wage of a common worker or a common laborer of $120. That is one denarius. So then you need to times that by 6,000 to get the value of one talent, which is $720,000. Then you need to times that by 10,000 in order to get 10,000 talents, which when we move the decimal over a few times is $7.2 billion in our funds. Now with that perspective, Think about how pitiful this sounds. Be patient with me, and I will pay everything back. How? <laughs> this is a debt that this man could never pay, even if he lived 1,000 years. And yet the king forgave him. The king had ordered his wife, children, and himself to be sold to repay the debt. This was a very common form of slavery at the time. But again, he and his family could have never, ever worked this debt off. Really, this was a punishment. And he is a slave to this debt. Without grace, he would remain a slave the rest of his life. One of the key points here then this morning is this. We offend God with our sin. Time and time again, in the Old Testament, the word to use for sin or trespasses is offenses. We offend God with our sin, and they are an offense to him. But in the face of countless offenses, $7.2 billion worth of your offenses to him, he said, I forgive it. Go. The second point, we have been wildly forgiven. We have to remember something very important at this moment. If this man is forgiven by the king, and this is an analogy of God and his forgiveness to us, then at this moment of being forgiven for a debt he could not pay, God has granted him salvation. Meaning at this point, the servant is now covered by grace. So this servant walks out of the king's chambers becoming a new person, and yet he walks out, and you know the story of where he goes. He goes and he shakes down someone who owes him. How much does this guy owe him? Using the same math before, using the daily wage of 120 bucks being one denarius, then 100 denarii would be 100 days of minimum wage, which would be about $12,000 Canadian now. But it also says that the servant choked the man where the king simply brought him before him. Have you ever watched a movie where um, someone gets themselves into some sort of like gambling debt or something and some massive just doofus of a guy whose only job it is is to break people's legs. He tells him he's going to break his legs and then and then the guy has to leave, and he's all frantic. And what does he do is he chases down someone he knows who owes him some money. So here's the question I have for you this morning. This man was just forgiven a debt of $7.2 billion. And what's the first thing that he does is he sees someone that owes him, and he goes, and he chokes him. It's not like, hey, remember that money you owed me? Just whenever you got the time. I'm a little strapped for cash. Um, would like it. No, he chokes him. Give me my money. 
Why? I have a theory. I have a theory is that that guy, even though he was forgiven that debt, he wanted some money so he could go back to the king and say, hey, I got a little bit. And honestly, if you get owed $7.2 billion and someone hands you a check for $12,000, you may as well slap them in the face with your $12,000 because you need to start making installments of $12 million to even hope to ever pay that back. And the question is to us, is how many times you've been forgiven of your $7.2 billion, but you go and you chase down whatever it is you can muster it up and say, um, God, here, I'm, I'm working really hard. I hope you see that. Here's my, here's my $12,000 worth of effort. And God's like, I've forgiven you. Do we understand really, though, if we've got a debt of $7.2 billion, do we really understand how deeply our sin has hurt God? I mean, $7.2 billion is, is a kind of a number you just can't even fathom today. You can't even fathom it. 12000 is still a lot of money, but it's not mythical. It's a real amount. It's an amount we can understand. It's an amount we can get a grip on. It's an amount we can look at who's, of someone who owes us, and then we can demand them to repay And it's an amount that actually seems real. We've been forgiven by God, but unless we come to grips with the fact that we have been forgiven a ridiculous, wildly lavish forgiveness, we will have no concept of it. And we will turn to people who owe us 12,000 and it will turn us into wicked people because that's what the king calls this man when he goes and chases this guy down. This guy actually does worse than the king. The king sells him as a slave. This guy, he goes, put him in prison. Put this man in prison because he owes me $12,000. How is he going to pay back in prison? He can't. He's punishing that guy. What prison do you put people in who have hurt or offended you? Maybe you don't visit them anymore because they've hurt you. Maybe you put up higher standards on them that they can't live up to. Maybe you demand that they make the first step. Until they do, you will wash your hands of them. And by doing so, you justify your own actions and you become blind to any role that you played in the matter. Maybe you talk about them to anyone who will listen and you are putting them not only in your prison, but you're framing in them in such a way that your friends or your coworkers also put them in a prison. There is a very stiff warning here. If we live like this servant, we won't be with God in paradise. We will be handed over to the jailers until we pay back what we owe. By the way, we can never do that. It's 7.2 billion. We're talking about real life things here though. This isn't just, I know it uses money, but these are people who've lied to us. These are people who've said things behind our back. These are people who continually talk in such a way that hurt us. But unless we understand the depth of how much we've been forgiven, we will not 
understand the depth of how much we need to forgive others. And maybe, maybe you're someone that comes from a, a bad background and, and you're very honest with your sin and you know everything that, that has happened to you. I, I almost say that, I dare say that you're probably a little bit easier to forgive others because you've seen the depth of your own wickedness. But then you may be someone like me who you could be like, you could easy to get towards judgment where you could be like, you know what? I've never, I've never been drunk. I've never been high. I, I pay my taxes. In fact, the longer you have lived as someone who's been forgiven that long of a debt, the more it's easy to be removed from the memory of the fact that you once owed $7.2 billion. And you can get to the place where you no longer even think about that anymore and you only think of the fact is, I am a very righteous person. That guy is not. But unless you come to the grips, to the understanding is, in my, in my mind, according to Jesus, I've committed adultery, I've committed murder because I have been angry and I've fought with lust. We have to understand, we have, we have a debt towards God that is massive. And he took it and he said, it's forgiven. And then we turn around and when someone doesn't like us or they talk about us bad or we get up, up, up just a, just they're not doing what we expect. Maybe that's our children or whatnot, or maybe it's family members. And we look at them and we stand back and go, oh, like, oh. and then we talk to our friends, and we talk to our accountability partner, and we make it sound holy, but in the end, we know our hearts. And we know what we're doing. Mercy is not giving to a person what she deserves, while grace is giving to that person what she does not deserve. As followers of Christ, you have been given what you, you have not been given what you deserve, that is mercy, and you have been given what you do not deserve, which is grace. The amount of mercy and grace you extend to others becomes a test for how much you have received them. You cannot give what you do not have. You can't give mercy if you haven't really received it. You can't show grace if you live like grace isn't for you. I want you this morning, we're going to take a couple songs after this to just reflect before we take communion. And my challenge to you is, I don't have to particularly talk about your situation. I think if we're honest with each other, if we're honest before the Lord, we probably know someone that we, there's something about not forgiving that person. And again, we're talking about real things. We're talking about sexual abuse as a child. We're, we're talking about infidelity. We're talking about his pornography addiction. We're talking about the way that she spoke to you and, 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 and threw out something that you shared with her in confidence and she told it to someone. We're talking about real things. But the fact is, your real things have been forgiven by God. And he says, you get to be my image bearers. And if we're going to walk out into the world and we're not going to bear the image of forgiveness, then we're giving a wrong picture of God because our God is wildly, wildly generous with forgiveness. Be broken by your sin. Let the debt of 7.2 billion sit with you long enough until you feel grace for knowing you are forgiven. It will help you to release others.
Maybe you need to come to the altar because you got stuck at the line. Be patient with me and I will pay everything back. You are stuck work, working to strive. You're stuck being good. You're stuck making payments and you're not even making a dent and you don't even realize it. You think you can earn it, but you can't. Or maybe you need to come to the altar because you know you've put people in prison. You've held them captive by your judgment and offense. Have you put people in a prison and you have made sure that your friends know why they're there? Could this person ever actually make it up to you? No, so choose forgiveness instead. Why are you going to give some time? Maybe you need to give some time here at the altar to just be in worship before the Lord and thank him for this generous forgiveness of a debt you could never pay. But we're going to move into communion. And Matthew 5, 25, or 24 says this, Therefore, if you are offering a gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and reconcile to your brother. Then come offer your gift. The way we live in here, the way we work in here, the way we forgive in here, the way we show grace in here, the way we show mercy in here is a way to show out there that God is real and that his forgiveness is real. If we can't do it in here, they certainly won't ever see it. I'm going to call the worship team up here to, to come and be prepared as I read and prepare our hearts for communion and prepare our hearts for for the altar I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians the passage where it talks about what to do about communion for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which has been broken for you. This is to cover your $7.2 billion debt. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and he said, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats of this bread and drinks of this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who drinks and eats without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak sick and a number of you have fallen asleep but if we have if we judged ourselves we would not come under judgment when we are judged by the lord we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world so my brothers when you come together to eat wait for each other if anyone's hungry he should eat at home so that when you meet together it may not result in judgment heavenly father as you prepare this time for us lord in that passage, it talks about we should examine ourselves. And Lord, as we've built into the service here, we've built in um, a couple worship songs in this moment now to examine ourselves. Lord, this is real. This is, this is gut level real of people hurting us. 
And to those who have been hurt in a way I know I never have been hurt, I can't completely identify with it. But Lord, you can. You've been whipped, mocked, scoffed, pierced your hands. You've been beaten to unrecognizable uh, face, Lord. You've been betrayed. And you stood on the cross and you offered forgiveness to the world. And so, Lord, help us to forgive. Lord, let's not worry about comparing ourselves to the person beside us. Let's worry about comparing ourselves to you. Heavenly Father, would you be in this space this morning? Would you be in our hearts this morning? Would you be calling us, Lord? Lord, would you bring forth that name that you know we need to come to the altar and, and release to you? May we examine ourselves this morning as we come and take the cup and the bread together. Amen.